As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. You are listening to part two of a special edition of the C.S. Lewis Podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and over this first series, Alistair and I have been looking at some of C.S. Lewis's thoughts around significant topics, such as the meaning of life, stories and suffering. You can find out more about the C.S. Lewis podcast by heading to cslewispodcast.com. C.S. Lewis is one of the most influential voices in modern Christianity. The 20th century British writer and lay theologian has profoundly impacted Christians around the world and brought many atheists and agnostics to faith in Jesus. One person whose faith was greatly encouraged by the writings of C.S. Lewis is Professor Alistair McGrath. Both men were raised in Northern Ireland, studied at Oxford University and went on to become professors there. They also both came to faith from atheism slightly later in life. Alistair has written numerous books on C.S. Lewis, including a seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life, which is published by Hodder. If you would like to get your hands on a free copy of this book, then we would love you to post about the C.S. Lewis podcast on social media. Use the hashtag C.S. Lewis podcast on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram and include a link to our website, cslewispodcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. And obviously, the more you share about the podcast, the more likely you are to win one of Professor Alistair McGrath's books. And Alistair's book is actually the focus of today's episode. In part two of this special edition, we've delved into the archives of another premier podcast, Unbelievable. Back in 2013, host Justin Briley spoke to Alistair McGrath about C.S. Lewis, A Life, which had just been published. They looked at Lewis's faith journey alongside answering listener questions. Uh, let's go to another question that came in. Um, I think this one came in via Twitter um, here, Alistair. Uh, Brandon wants to know, what would you consider to be your biggest objection to Lewis's theology or thinking? And I, and I did note in the preface to the book, you, you said this, um, that um, uh, if I can find it, yes, um, that many but not all of Lewis's ideas and approaches retain at least something of their sparkle and power. And it was that not all. Obviously, you're a big fan of Lewis, but you don't see that all of his arguments, his uh, pass necessarily. No, Lewis is an inspiration, but there are points where I'd want to say, well, maybe that worked in 1940. It doesn't work now. I think get, taking up your listener's question, I mean, for me, the trilemma, Jesus is either mad, bad or God, actually, in the way in which Lewis states it, 
actually needs an awful lot of reworking. Mm. I think that Lewis, in effect, is clearly trying to pack a big argument into a very short space, and there are a lot of shortcuts. There are steps in the argument that are left out. I think many people reading that section of the mere Christianity will say, just a minute, it's not quite that simple, is it? Mm. And they're right. Mm. And in fact, in the original broadcast address, Lewis gave a much more extended version of the argument, which makes much more sense. So there's a sense in which uh, the argument for which Lewis is best known, by some people at least, is actually not as well stated as it could be. So I'm just going to be urging caution at that point. I mean, as, as I mentioned, we've we've added to his trilemma mm. the legend category, mm. which is, I think, what a lot of people point out is, yes. well, it could have exactly. been that it could be. th- this was a later accumulation. Yeah. Of- and all of these points can be engaged very, very well. And Lewis gives us some helpful pointers, mm. but his original statement of the approach yes. does need a bit of rework. I suppose it's one of the pitfalls of popular apologetics that um, you can't necessarily well, give an entire right. argument. I mean, I sometimes feel like reading Richard Dawkins. You know, it's popular <laughs> apologetics and just say, well, you know, don't mind saying so. A lot more to it than this. And sometimes, sometimes I feel that about Lewis as well. You know, if you're going to be popular, very often that means you simplify. And mm. that sometimes can be a problem. One, one of the criticisms I've sometimes seen as well um, is that some people have suggested Lewis sometimes substitutes analogy for argument. And so he, g- he gives a really cracking picture analogy but it's not quite the same as a deductive argument for god um what do you, what do you make of that one of the great things that lewis does is what he calls transposition you see things in a new way and very often you say look at it this way and when you look at it that way you see suddenly it doesn't become a problem anymore the the analogy or the image does all the hard work for you and one of the points that lewis makes time and time again is that one of the things you've got to do is to learn to see things from a different angle in a different way and once you do that what seems to be an intellectual difficulty suddenly becomes simply a problem that arises from your original angle of approach so actually it's not that lewis is saying argument is bad it's saying look this is a much better way of doing it and i would say that's one of lewis's great strengths he doesn't give up an argument he says there's a neater more imaginative way of doing it and it's to change the way you look at it Hmm. i know that one of your favorite sort of quotations from lewis um is is that one um i'm not sure exactly where it occurs now but uh that i believe in god as i believe in or believe in christianity as i believe in the sun because I not only see it, but by it I see everything else, or words to that effect. Um, and it was those little sort of ways of looking, you know, looking at the issue that, mm. that, that kind of just summed it up in a that, that he seemed to have a gift for, didn't he? That's they? right. That's Lewis's genre. That's the way he does things. And mm. that, that quote comes from the end of his essay, Is Theology Poetry? But it's characteristic of Lewis. You know, arguments are worthy. They're workmanlike, but they can be awfully dull. <laughs> Lewis says, look, a good image does all that work for you much more elegantly, much more attractively. We will get to Narnia as well before the end of the show today, but but I wanted to, to focus in a little bit on some of his apologetics, his his arguments for God. Um, I mean, I, I um, grew up as a child on Narnia, as a late teenager, early 20s, uh, examining the Christian faith that I had come to. I, I, I dug into some of his books, obviously mere Christianity, but also things like miracles, which which for me was the first time I'd seen someone lay down an argument against naturalism, against atheism, if you like, um, with a sort of quite compelling logical argument. Um, and that's obviously been adapted by others. I think people like 
Alvin Plantinga today have sort of taken that on, uh, the, the argument from reason in, in other directions. Um, 50, 60 years on since he wrote that, um, do you feel it's still a compelling argument, the argument from reason? And for those who aren't aware exactly what that is, perhaps you'd like to give a, a brief encapsulation. Well, I think that the basic points Lewis um, made are still in play. I mean, for example, Alvin Planting, a very good Christian philosopher, has developed them still further. And incidentally, that, that book is seen as a landmark critique of a purely naturalist uh, view. You can't sustain it. Mm. Likewise, I mean, for example, you will find people saying, oh, well, we only believe what reason can prove. Well, can reason prove that reason is right? Mm. It's a very important point. Well, Pascal once said that one of the first steps of reason is to realize its own limitations. And that's a very important point. I think what Lewis is really doing is not saying here's a deductive argument for God. It's much more, look, if there were a God, then actually this and this and this and this all make an awful lot more sense. It's much more, here is a big picture. Here's a way of looking at things. And if you look at things in this way, suddenly things make sense. It's more um, more inferential than deductive. And mm. that's, I think, part of Lewis's genius. He, in effect, says, look at things my way. And tells you a story, uses analogies, and then says, now, what do you think of that? Better than what you think, isn't it? Mm. So it's, it's mm. a very good way of drawing people in. It's rational, yes, but it's not limited to reason. Reason on its own is profoundly inadequate. It, it can help us critique things that are wrong, but showing that something is wrong doesn't tell you what is right. Yes, and, and, and 60 or 70 years on since, since he wrote that book, I mean, nothing much has changed. The, the new atheism is still claiming the same sorts of naturalism that Lewis was critiquing back then. And it's almost as though they haven't come across these arguments that seem to strongly suggest it's very hard to uh, account for reason on a naturalistic basis if, if, if ultimately life boils down to energy and matter, you know, a very non-rational process giving rise to this thing we call reason. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that puzzles me about new atheism is why don't they engage these because everyone else knows about them, even if they don't and even charles darwin back in the 1860s was saying look i'm worried about this <laughs> and, you know, and and that is a major theme and you know it's very easy to make your case if you just ignore the arguments against it i mean lewis loved the the cut and thrust of debate and you know he, he sort of set up a sort of socratic mm-hmm. debating club at oxford now i, I seem to remember recall uh, some anecdote that Lewis had a engagement with, I think, Elizabeth Anscombe, uh, a philosopher uh, also. And um, on this argument, or, or something along these lines, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, that he came away rather wounded because she actually um, had rather a good critique of, of the argument from reason. Do you have any more to add to that? Yes, I'm, I talk I'm about that easy. quite a lot in the book because, as you, as you rightly say, it's a very important thing. And certainly, A.N. Wilson, who wrote the best biography of Lewis before mine, thought that this explained why Lewis started writing children's fiction because mm. he'd been he'd been bested an argument sort of licking his wounds exactly. in, in the fantasy exactly. genre the retreat yeah. to childhood sort of stuff I mean I, I don't think that's right at all and the evidence certainly doesn't support it what Elizabeth Anscombe did was to say look Lewis has set out this argument in the first edition of Miracles um, let me take it to pieces because I think he's right but he doesn't say it as well as he could okay. and so it, in effect it's almost like the inklings you know, Anscombe is saying you can do better than this Lewis and, and Lewis 
<laughs> was publicly a bit shamed by this, but actually he then went away and rewrote that chapter, which was not good. I'll say mm, that. The first mm. edition was not good. And the new edition that he produced actually became definitive. Alvin Plantinga reprises that argument. Mm. And so what Elizabeth Anscombe was doing was not uh, knocking Lewis down, but in effect it's like an Oxford tutorial. Let me help <laughs> you state this in a better way, and that's my service to you. I mean, in a world which was obviously primarily dominated by male academic colleagues, was there any element of um, chagrin at being bested by a woman in that day and age? Yes, there would have been. I think that, that's another thing. I think Lewis, and what was one point I make in the biography, Lewis wasn't that good at relating to women, particularly academic women. Uh, and I think that there may well be two elements here. One, oh dear, I've been defeated, or at least seemed to be defeated by a woman. But the other thing is, um, in order to defeat this woman, I would need to be aggressive. And that's something I don't do towards women. And there's a, a really right. interesting <laughs> dynamic there, which I think tells us more about Lewis than about the argument. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll come on to, to Narnia as well. Um, but another thing, obviously, that you cover in the book is his relationship with Joy Davidman um, and th- this marriage late on in his life to this uh, bubbly American. Or That's the way she's portrayed in the, what most people know as their life story, uh, Shadowlands, the movie by Anthony Hopkins and Deborah Winger playing the parts of Lewis and, and Joy. Uh, what, what's your view? Does does that film realistically capture their relationship, um, their character, and, and what happened in that in that part of his life? No, <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, it portrays Lewis as a kind of really socially backward, retentive person who has difficulty with relationships, mm. and uh, Joy as a, a sort of feisty young New York girl who knows a, few, knows a few good things about life and helps this withdrawn, crusty old bachelor <laughs> discover the good things in life. Yeah. No, it's not like that. I mean, okay. Lewis, Lewis was noted for his joviality. He had very good relationships with his male friends. Mm. And Joy, um, how shall I put this? Joy wasn't, I think, that good at... Um, at dealing with English culture. Um, mm. She came across as very brash, mm. very simplistic. Uh, hardly any of Lewis's friends liked her. Mm. And when they discovered Lewis had actually married her, I mean, <laughs> A, they were, they were appalled at the event, but B, they were hurt that Lewis hadn't told them about this. And that's one of the reasons why Tolkien really began to despair about Lewis in the late 1950s. Right, because their, their relationship was up and down, Lewis and Tolkien, um, and and obviously, in a way, I can imagine how having been this bachelor surrounded by male academic colleagues, the Inklings and so on, she would have been seen even as a bit of a threat to, to that way of life uh, at that point in, in his life. Well, I think that's right. I think people just felt that she was an intrusion. And mm. also, the, people also felt that Lewis was not that good with women and he needed some help to cope with them. And the problem, I think, for some of Lewis's friends was that before they knew what happened, Lewis had married Joy Davidman. <laughs> and I think if they had known it was getting that serious, they might have, they might have said certain right. things. Yes, because it, that that was all again part of Lewis's eccentricity. Was he, he married her um, initially, as far as the story goes, um, to, to aid her in her sort of um, uh, immigration issues. But um, but they did fall in love. They did have this relationship. And in what ways would you say that did change Lewis? 
Well, I think it changed him in a number of ways. I mean, there is no doubt that Joy Davidman helped Lewis with some of his books. I would just Mm. personally say that she gave him the stimulus which allowed him to begin writing um, Till We Are Faces. And he he was stalling on that. He couldn't Mm -hmm. see how to get off the ground. She really helped him there. And I suppose in a sort of rather rather sad way she helped him with a grief observed you know that because her death was the occasion for that book and many would say that's one of lewis's most revealing most poignant books which talks about how someone came to terms with um the death of his wife and of course lewis wrote that anonymously or rather under pseudonym in fact you probably know this but uh, some of lewis's friends said look uh, you're you're coping very well with this death but there's a very good book called (laughs) grief observed you ought to read it it'll really help you (laughs) Yeah, and and in a sense, a grief observed sort of came obviously a number of years after his first major mm. apologetic work, the problem of pain, but sort of dealt with it on a different kind of level. Yes, I think it? that's right. I I like a problem of pain, but it was written in 1940, and it's very much pain's a bit of a logical puzzle, isn't it? Mm. Well, let me sort that out for you. Mm. A grief observed, written in 1961, is I'm experiencing pain. I'm suffering. No. How do I cope with it? I'm bewildered. It's about coping, not understanding. And many would say that a grief observed showed up the weaknesses of a problem of pain. Mm. And in fact, Lewis at one or two points is kind of a challenges ideas he himself set out back in 1940. Mm. Shadowlands, that very interesting but very inadequate representation mm. of things, uh, portrays Lewis becoming a kind of secular humanist after Joy's death. No, no, mm. no. He mm. recovered his faith. In fact, I would say his faith in many ways was more robust. Mm. And the final parts of A Grief Observe, I think, help us understand why that was. Let's go to another listener question. Um, Lewis was a Christian. He was an Anglican. He um, regularly attended chapel, a church in Oxford as well, um, but didn't tend to major a terrible amount on specific doctrines, though he did obviously discuss these things in, in letters and things. But, but for instance, um, one person, um, Kyle, um, no, let's go to Brandon first of all, um, who says, was Lewis's view of the atonement anti-substitutionary? Did he only hold to Christus Victor? Now, we did a show on this a few weeks ago, looking at the different sort of views of the atonement, Alistair. Um, I, I, I'm really not sure where Lewis stood on, on sort of exactly what his views are and what happened on the cross and, and how the atonement works. Do, do you have anything to, to say to well, that? Well, Lewis, one of Lewis's big themes is, look, um, theories are secondary, they're derivative. The important thing is the reality to which they refer. And so Lewis, in effect, says, look, um, he says mere Christianity and elsewhere, look, um, these theories of the atonement, they're just just ways of trying to make sense of this. But they're not the important thing. The important thing is the reality that God has done something in Christ that utterly changes everything. And sure, you can open this up using um, Christus Victor models or substitutionary models or whatever you want. In Narnia, Lewis provides a model of atonement which is very inadequate. But it's not, Narnia isn't about atonement. It's about, in effect, um, you know, helping you to begin to engage with the Christian worldview. And so my own view is that Lewis uh, is not anti-anything in terms mm. of his theories of the atonement. He's anti-theory. In a sense, he says a theory is reductionist. Yes. And you cannot reduce what we call the atonement to a kind of mechanistic theory. Mm. It's bigger than that, even though the theory may help you make sense of it. I mean, I suppose coming to... to the- Narnia, particularly the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and there you have the clearest, obviously, um, picture of 
uh, Christ's death through Aslan on the stone table. Um, and when I think about that, I suppose I think it, it seems to capture, obviously not everything, but but it seems to capture aspects of substitutionary atonement and Christus Victor, you know, the idea of a deeper force of love winning over evil in the Christus Victor sort of view, but also the the him taking the place of the traitor Edmund and so on. So so he, he was bringing certain aspects of these Absolutely. things. Absolutely. And there's no doubt that, that many people would say that's one of the most moving scenes in, in the whole Narnia series. Yeah. I think they're right, actually. I think it, 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 it moves me to tears at times, mm. I have to say. What I'm saying, though, is it doesn't really set out to give a full-blown account of the mm. atonement. Let me ask you this question. Who benefits from death of Aslan? Well, the mm. answer is just one person. Now you can see that that actually <laughs> does does to say, look, maybe we need to maybe the atonement's bigger than that. Yeah. And I think what Lewis is really trying to do is to give us a way of thinking about the death of Christ, which opens up um, all the right questions. Yeah. But you can't answer those in a children's story, so we mustn't see Narnia as a <laughs> theological textbook, which uh, is deficient. If you read as a theological textbook. Yeah. Uh, uh, you mentioned that A.N. Wilson, who obviously um, was controversial in some aspects of his biography of Lewis, but but, but thought that Lewis retreated to Narnia, uh, having been bested by Anscombe. Um, you, you disagree with that a little. Um, what was the motive, as far as you're concerned, for Lewis taking this new trajectory of, of children's writing? Well, I think the main point to make here is that there's evidence Lewis was thinking of doing something like this perhaps as early as 1939. And, of course, Lewis had discovered in his Space uh, Trilogy, or the Ransom Trilogy, whatever you want to call it, um, that you could use stories to critique worldviews like, for example, H.G. Wells' hopelessly naive optimism about the future. And I think what Lewis began to realize is, look, stories can be used very, very effectively to um, raise questions, to provide possible answers. And what was new, I think, was the children's story. Lewis didn't have any children. In fact, Lewis didn't know very many children. In fact, Lewis... He is the oddest person <laughs> yes. to write one of the best-selling children. Well, exactly. In fact, the evidence suggests he didn't like them very much either. <laughs> However, that being said, um, he obviously thought, look, um, when I was a child, I read people like, like Inesbet, you know, mm. the railway children, things like that. That's a genre I could use. And George MacDonald, who wrote oh, children's stories. Yes. Um, the, yeah. the, the, uh, so, so in a sense, he had a model. That he he was had a model, and he, and he made it very, very clear how indebted he was to that model. The problem is, really, he did it so well that we then look at earlier models and think, gosh, they're not very good. But, <laughs> but you know, the problem was they were very good in their own day and age. Lewis just did them rather better. What do you make of, uh, I've had him on the show um, a couple of years ago talking about it, but um, Michael Ward is, is one of the leading um, Narnia scholars, uh, Lewis scholar generally, but his thesis that he has discovered a sort of previously unseen uh, theme running that unifies these these books, these, this planetary schema. Um, have you been convinced by, by his view? Well, I have to say, I, I think I am. I mean, it, it, at some points, the fine detail, I might say, or well, maybe not quite so sure about that. Mm. But in general terms, that does help us understand why each of the Narnia novels has its own distinct feel or atmosphere. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And certainly Lewis would have used that symbolism very, very 
very easily as a medieval literature scholar. So actually, I, I think it's helpful. I'm not saying Lewis is into astrology. So no, that's no, not what, he, what no. Michael Ward is saying at all. He's saying, look, there is this sense in medieval literature that, um, that there's this scheme of looking at things which makes a lot of sense. And Lewis is saying, let's use that. So I think that Michael Ward's book on Narnia is one of the best books on Narnia in recent years. I'd agree entirely. And, and in a sense, um, just, again, showing how much more there is to Lewis than first meets the eye very often, because many people have thought, well, you've got a good children's story, and then the next level is a sort of Christian allegory. But he had, if it's true, and it seems really likely it is, he had even a third level. Oh, and that, more that than that. No, there's more to it than that. And yeah. one of the things I really feel is that in the last five years, we're beginning to realise how much more there is to Lewis than we've discovered already, both in terms of levels of interpretation, but also in terms of what Lewis planted there for us to find. Let's take another listener question. This one comes from, um, uh, I believe it's Kyle. Uh, I don't know what you'll make of this, um, because Lewis does have some things to say about hell in some of his books. I think The Problem of Pain has a chapter on it. Um, But he wants to know from you, Alistair, what do you think of Lewis's doctrine of hell? And was it more influenced theologically or philosophically? Well, Lewis seems to, um, towards the end of his life, move away from talking about hell very much at all. Um, Certainly in The Problem of Pain, he does talk about this. Um, there's something about in mere Christianity, but uh, you have the impression that when you read, for example, The Last Battle, that actually Lewis is really beginning to position himself uh, rather in a different mode of thinking altogether. Mm. To be honest with you, I, I am not sure there's a coherent doctrine of hell at all in Lewis. I think on the whole, towards the end of his life, Lewis moved away from explicitly discussing the issue at all. He certainly in his later writing, his letters, talks an awful lot about heaven. Mm. But very often that, that is that is that is what the Christian hope is all about. It's not deliverance from hell. It is about being with God. And it's almost as if Lewis is going back to writers like John Wesley, who really saw the the motivation for being a Christian, for believing in God, as about being drawn to God mm. rather than wanting to avoid hell. So I think that's that's something I see in Lewis, particularly towards the end of his life. I found my, one of the most fascinating books that kind of touches on this, obviously, is The Great Divorce. Mm. Um, and in that... Some have suggested um, that that Lewis is almost edging towards a sort of a form of universalism, potentially, or or in other aspects of of what he writes. This idea that that hell is almost contained within heaven um, and that there is a possibility of somehow... Uh, getting out of that state. That's sort of the way the story unfolds, you know, um, in in The Great Divorce. I mean, is that going too far to try and label Lewis as, as towards the end, sort of taking a more universalist position? I think it's very, very hard to attach a label to Lewis. But what I would say is that a number of writers have discerned that trend in his thinking, and I can understand exactly why. The problem is he's not actually all that straightforward. <laughs> and, and therefore, I think you, you know, if you have someone who is a universalist, someone who's a classic, old-fashioned belief in hell person, each of those could find passages in Lewis that they could bring forward to support their position. He's, he's complex. Now, I personally think he hasn't resolved this issue himself. As you say, though, his, his major concern latterly was, was heaven. Mm, very and, much so. and, and, and in that sense, um, 
I suppose like any Christian, his thinking evolved over time. And do you tend to see that in his work, that you've got a different kind of focus thinking? I mean, what what would you say are the major differences between the later Lewis the Christian and the early Lewis the Yes, Christian? that's a very good point. Uh, let, let's compare Lewis, let, let's say during his Cambridge phase from 1955 to uh, 60. Three, really, uh, and the Oxford phase. And in the Oxford phase, Lewis is a, an atheist who's become a Christian. And one of the things he wants to do is to, in effect, say, look, here are the reasons that move me in this direction. These might be interesting to you. And he becomes an apologist, very much someone who publicly mm. defends the Christian faith as a former atheist, saying, look, I used to think this. Now I don't think it anymore. Here's why. Here's some good reasons for understanding why I made that move. And in some of his letters, he writes about how exhausting he finds doing apologetics it's 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 it, it saps him it drains him mm. not because of any problems with the argument because he feels he's on trial yes. as he in effect defends these things in the cambridge period you know we're talking mainly about books like the four loves uh, reflections on the psalms which he makes very very clear are not works of apologetics they're in effect there to refresh him mm. and his readers these are books for christians to help them luxuriate yeah. in their faith in their so there is a shift exactly yeah. Yeah. Yes. you're interested in the fact that lewis appeals both to, to modern and postmodern. I, I understand is, is that yes sort of that's a, right a, i mean it's, it's very interesting one of the things i've noticed is that um, lewis appeals to what we might loosely call modern and postmodern people modern meaning really focusing on rationality reasoned argument postmodern much more interested in stories and images and if you look at lewis for example in mere christianity we have very good rational arguments Faith is not irrational. There are very good reasons for thinking it's right. Here they are. What do you think? But in things like Narnia, Kilbia faces a much more imaginative approach. One of the astonishing things is that Lewis bridges this modern-postmodern divide. I have friends who began as being modern, became postmodern, and Lewis has been their companion <laughs> all the way along the line. It's remarkable. And, and Lewis is not just saying, I'm going to flip modes. Today I'm modern, tomorrow I'm postmodern. It's much more, I have this bigger vision of reality, and I'm laying it all out. And it involves argument, it involves stories, mm. it involves an appeal to the imagination, and it's all there as part of Lewis. The fact that we're still talking about him in this way 50 years on suggests that no one's really done it as well as him since. Um, do you feel like we need another C.S. Lewis, or, or would whatever that person or thing that was today look quite different to what he was doing in his time? I think we do need a new C.S. Lewis, but I'm very glad we have the original C.S. Lewis <laughs> in the meantime while we wait for that person to arise. But I think the real issue is, look, Lewis is a professional literature scholar mm. who is able to use literature in a very important way. And that means we're really looking for someone who comes from that kind of background. And I'm not sure we're going to see someone who is able to use argument, who's able to use narratives, who's able to be winsome in presentation. I think that maybe one day in the future we may have a new Lewis. I suspect that we have people at the moment who can do bits of what Lewis yes. did, but none who integrates them in the same way. I mean, obviously, he, he, his medium was literature, primarily. Today, if, if we are going to see another Lewis, it, it, it might be in, in, in the internet, it might be in film, things that obviously have in many ways become the new medium for transmitting ideas in today's day and age. But the principles remain the same, I, I guess, of you, if you want to 
speak Christianity in a compelling way into people's lives, it can't just be argument. It has to be this sort of very imaginative way of fusing the two together in some way. It has to be what Lewis calls transposition, which is in effect saying, let's look ahead this way. Christianity gives you a light which makes sense of things. Let's look ahead through this telescope and see how much sense it makes. Do you find that there is still interest in him do you, do you find that people are kind of still turning to lewis um for, for his ideas today 50 years on absolutely the sales figures of lewis's books today are greater than at any point during his lifetime isn't that extraordinary it's extraordinary <laughs> he's clearly saying things that matter to people and saying them in a way that they really find interesting and accessible uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show today it's been great fun thank you for having me Thank you for listening to this special edition of the C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, which was originally broadcast on Unbelievable in 2013. I'm Ruth Jackson, and if you enjoyed this podcast, then please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. If you would like to get your hands on a free copy of one of Alistair's books about C.S. Lewis, then we would love you to post about this new C.S. Lewis podcast on social media. Use the hashtag C.S. Lewis podcast on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram and include a link to our website cslewispodcast.com We're going to be taking a short break from the podcast but we'll be back soon with a new series focusing on C.S. Lewis's seminal book Mere Christianity Mere Christianity